Welcome to the Snackscast, where we sit down with the teams behind the teams and find out what it takes to grow the game. That's going in the group. What's that? <laughs> Nothing. So today, doing uh, recently, I put out a, a request via social media to do some contact form questions and also Instagram story questions, and we got a number of responses. So today, I've enlisted the help of my fearless manager of the Coast Guard rugby team and head coach of the Prince William County. Uh, men's rugby club, Vincent Natopi. Vinny, how are you doing today? Doing well, Snacks. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. How did your season end up with Prince William County? Uh, it went pretty good. Uh, pretty well. We, we finished up 5-2 uh, and two for the year. Uh, split season, you know, fall and spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, just started sevens training this week, and we're looking at uh, a few tournaments. And we'll uh, we'll prep for those and, you know, try to build a, uh, a sevens contingent in the area. Nice, nice. Um, sevens is often an undervalued recruiting resource, and I'm glad you're taking full advantage of that because I feel like you had told me last year you got a couple good athletes from your seven season too, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. We uh, even though they're uh, we we got some Marines, you know, we'll uh, we'll, we'll take them and uh, we'll we'll mold them into some sevens uh, players. Don't mold them too good, Vin. We got Armed Forces Championships coming up. Yeah, of course. You only teach them the uh, the, the basics. Nice. So, so yeah, we're, uh, we're we're looking forward to that. Okay. How'd your so, uh, how'd your seventh season end up? Well, great. Now that you ask, um, we just finished uh, playing at national championships, which we placed eleventh in the country at USA Rugby National College Sevens Championships. So it went really well and talked about that at length on some of the other shows that will probably be released before this. So thank you for asking. Um, so for today's format, we're, I've enlisted Vin's help so he can be a sounding board and ask the question. And then potentially he might ask some questions that people are having that are listening to the show. And if a question isn't asked or isn't answered or at you have one, feel free to send it into the contact form at snackscast.com or through Instagram or Facebook. Uh, then, why don't we start with the first one? You ready to go? Yeah, sure. All right, here we go. What is the, uh, the best advice you can give a youth rugby player that wants to represent their country as an eagle? This comes from Jason Scrogham via contact form. Uh, the best advice I could give a youth rugby player. So first and foremost, I think playing the game is about two things, right? It's about enjoyment, having fun with your friends and your your teammates and, and enjoying what you're doing. And two, it's about learning the game and learning, you know, obviously rules, skills, basics, all that good stuff, but also learning about how you all, how you will play as an athlete when tackling comes into play or you know, a scrum or a lineup or all that stuff. So there's a lot of enjoyment and education points that, that should be kept at the forefront for a young player. Um, I know in other sports, we identify athletes as early as the age of nine to specialize. And I don't necessarily think that's a great thing. So if our young rugby players 
want to be Eagles, the best advice I could give is enjoy what you're doing and continue to have fun playing rugby, continue to learn, right? And if you continue to do those things, stay in the game. And then the third thing, and and I think many coaches out there would recommend this, is to play multiple sports. Don't pigeonhole yourself into the rugby game, right? I grew up playing football, baseball. I had a season of basketball. I skateboarded nearly every day. And I, I'm pretty thankful that I had that well-rounded background of athleticism and decision-making. And it holds true. You know, there's studies out there and you could find them that show multiple sport athletes generally do better and progress further in athletics into adulthood. Um, I want to say the the recent statistic that I saw during a study was like 73% of athletes who are specialized athletes burn out by the age of 15. And then they ultimately don't go on to play sports as an adult, which is a sad thing to see because athletics is so important in our culture and society. What do you think, Ben? Definitely. Yeah. The, uh, the multiple sport thing for sure. I I mean, you you nailed it with enjoyment and learning, but playing multiple sports, I mean, not only from a, uh, a standpoint of, you know, uh, developing yourself because not every sport uses every, you know, muscle, so to speak, or, or the same thinking pattern. So you're, you're thinking outside the box, like, you know, basketball would be great for rugby. You're looking for space. Uh, game like lacrosse, you know, you're looking for open fields for sevens, maybe. So there's a lot of like, a lot more communication. Uh, you know, different different ways people, uh, you know, maybe say things or communicate or, or the way you work together. So it's, uh, I think it's really important to play multiple sports and 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 get a much better sense of some of the other people that you may play with. You know along the lines you're, you're not going to meet all these people in one sport right away but you know maybe you play ba- baseball or basketball or football you know you'll you get a much bigger uh group of people yeah so I, what i hear you saying is playing multiple sports increases creativity oh yeah right decision making yeah. and, and potentially a recruiting opportunity you know your parents are meeting baseball parents or soccer parents or lacrosse parents you could get some of your friends to come on over yeah for sure you know, one last thing to think about in terms of this is is injury reduction, right? Injuries can't be prevented because they're just going to happen. But, you know, if you're not doing the same movements over and over again and your body's challenged on multiple planes and angles and, and challenges, you're less likely to suffer an injury, I, I feel like, as well, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you're just okay. working on the, the, whole, the whole base. <laughs> true 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 uh why don't we move on to number two yeah sure all right number two uh what is the reality of employment in u.s rugby and this comes from uh will Raines via instagram the reality of employment in u.s rugby is it's viable to a certain extent um there are over 30 full-time people at the national office and they're currently hiring for positions as we speak uh, in participation in college sport, uh, in the college game, excuse me. And, you know, events that have internships that you can get your foot in the door and then move on into a full-time position. Um, the other thing is, is contracting and Vinny, you and I are both contractors for the events department and we get to, to work events from time to time. And it's sort of a side hustle for us, but a great experience builder until we, we can sort of, find that full-time employment with USA Rugby or MLR 
or you know there's some other entities coming on board now i don't promote one over the other to to be brutally honest because i think there's value in each of them but you also like we just talked about the mlr has coaching staffs they have training staffs they have uh, strength and conditioning staffs they have management staffs right they have managers admin uh, social media marketing media people they have some of the teams i know san diego legion has community development person and uh, Pamela Madden, who is a longtime San Diego stalwart out there, and, and she's doing a great job. So there are positions opening up. Uh, I mean, there's even full-time university positions. You know, my buddy Josh Sutcliffe is fully employed by Stanford University, Jack Clark, Tom Billups, Mike McDonald at Cal, uh, Josh Macy at Lindenwood. You know, there's there's all kinds of options out there now that weren't there five to 10 years ago. And it's a matter of a couple things, right? Being in the right place at the right time, having the necessary experience or, or enough experience that you could grow and project into the role. And then um, just luck, man, just just making sure you see that. So places you could find those jobs. I know usarugby.org has a careers page. Mm-hmm. I've seen jobs on indeed.com. Uh, I've seen, uh, God, what's the name? Teamwork Online, I believe is another one that has sports jobs. Okay. You know, yeah, that's another one. Um, in terms of of employment and sport, though, there's a lot of people that do sports management degrees. You know, we we just did a show with Nick Tricarico, who has a sports management degree, and most of the folks that come out of those, in my experience, or at least my opinion, what I'm seeing is they go into ticket sales jobs, which isn't the best job in the world because you're not directly involved with athletes or the team. So, you know, there's internships. I know Minnesota Vikings just put out some internships. Minnesota United put out some internships. You know, go work in another sport if you want to ultimately get into rugby someday, too. That's another thing. You know, there's how many governing bodies in the United States? USA Karate, USA Volleyball, Basketball, USA Football is now a national governing body. So the the reality is there. There are jobs you just have to have. The experience, knowledge, and, and timing to get one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, all, all of those are great. And now with uh, a bunch of high school jobs opening up, you know, you're having uh, yet another mm-hmm. another foot in the door, so to speak. And maybe if you're not directly connected to U.S. rugby, um, you know, like representing in, in an AGM or, or a local union, you know, it's, this is probably a good way to get your name out there or at least get a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah. One of the roles I actually did concurrently when I first stopped, when I first left the military and I first started working events was I was the vice president of the Southern California rugby football union. And that showed me that view behind the curtain, like you're talking about and how disciplinary committees work, how budgeting works, financial, um, registration systems work you know it was it was an eye-opening to see how much went into actually running a union and and to be brutally honest i think local unions are the folks who need the most help because oftentimes they're the ones that are enforcing the the eligibility the scheduling all those things at a local level and usa rugby ultimately gets blamed for that which usa rugby doesn't do your schedule right they don't they, you know, they just, you pay your money, you get your liability insurance and second tier health insurance and you can play rugby. It, and that's to protect your club, to be honest. But All right. 
So number three, uh, how would you improve the championship experience in the USA? And this comes from Legacy Rugby Academy via Instagram. Um, the championship rugby experience in the USA. Now, do you want to define which uh, which championship? You know, we're, uh, looking, so we're looking club. We're, we're looking MLR. Um, and that that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, like there is collegiate. So there's so many different levels and, and entities. Um, out of, given my events background, which I believe that's where the question's coming from. I think the first thing you got to look at is the players, right? Are you having players who are competent and capable enough to play at a national championship level, right? So are they traveling? It's like Fresno State women's team traveled 13 hours one way to go play in college sevens last weekend. They drove for most teams flew, you know, so that, that's something you got to take into account is like proximity Mm -hmm. For the athletes, you know, once the athletes are there, like, are they going to be in a tent? Are they going to be in a locker room? Um, do they have access to recovery protocols like ice baths or food or showers? You know, you would be amazed how well received a nice hot shower or a cold shower is received after after a tournament. Um, if you're talking 15s, it's like a one and done, right? You just kind of put your stuff in there, play your game and then go back to your hotel um, so you'd have to look at hotels that are close to the area, um, whether they have pools, free breakfast. You know, one of the things at the university, when we book a hotel, it has to have Wi-Fi. It has to have a free breakfast and a very nice to have, but not necessary, uh, is a pool, right? So the, the players can go and have a, have a soak, have a dip, you know, stretch out, do an activation. Um, as far as events-wise, from an organizer standpoint, access to clean water where people can, can keep water bottles filled and get iced for injury and keeping drinks cool. Like in Phoenix last weekend, the water in the jugs was like bath water because it was, it was hot at times. So, you know, we mitigated that, right? We, we had a water crew of volunteers that went around and we got them ice bags and they put that in and it solved the problem. But that's a little detail, right? The details, the players improvements come in the details. You know, we had a, we had a, a tent village. Okay. Which you normally see. Well, on the second day we realized the tent village was being utilized, but we had a DJ who was not, you know, for the fans. So we took the DJ from the fan experience, which wasn't getting any sort of exposure. And we put him in the middle of the athlete village and all of a sudden the atmosphere loosened up and the teams are having fun. So that's, you know, that's a small improvement. Um, we had a shaded area, a massive pavilion, which in a hot day is great, right? The air, and we put um, swamp cooler fans in there. So air was cooler blowing through there than it normally would. So that, that's another improvement. Um, the other thing is, is if you're an organizer, timing of games, right? Oh, yeah. On yeah. the World Series for HSBC 7s, you have to have a minimum rest period of two hours between the last kick, the last whistle of your final game before, excuse me, and the kickoff of the next game. So you have enough time to recover and get back into a decent nick to, to play the best you can. So if you're not, if you're holding a local tournament or, or if you're holding a championship event, right? Cause we could be talking about SRO state high school championships. We could be talking about regional collegiate championships um, on the national level. I know we look at that rest period and we make sure it's a, a certain time frame. Um, 
The other improvement would be the fields themselves. You know, I know everybody talks about width and length of fields, like making sure they're just the right width and length. You know, like if you're playing a sevens tournament, a little bit more width is better than length because you want them to run around. You don't want to see 15s rugby on a 30 meter wide pitch. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, so I, I think improvements for fans or excuse me, for players are the details, right? The, how do we make you feel the best you can between games to play your best when you get on the field? Right. Cause ultimately the product for any event is the rugby on the field. If the athletes are too tired, they're not recovered enough. They're not fed. Well, access to food. That's another one. Yeah. Right. Um, we actually made a massive improvement at, college sevens they had a healthy options concession stand in the athlete pavilion which i thought was brilliant bananas apples salad uh there was like a grilled chicken sandwich in there gatorade you know the usual stuff um so i think that's pretty good for the players in terms of fans um the biggest improvement for fans would be the rugby on the field right fans like to listen to music that's great make sure the pa system's playing music in between games or at halftime to set a mood um we actually at college sevens we when we got to the knockout rounds james went up to the booth and started playing music and we were taking requests and we found the first couple songs we did like edm to kind of pump it up and then we ended up i was like yo just play play um sweet caroline and let's see what happens right and so we played it and everyone started singing in the stands, you know? And so that that's just a little piece of the experience puzzle for fans. But, I mean, it's music. Everyone loves music. Yeah, who doesn't love know? to sing along classic? No, exactly, right? <laughs> um, the other piece for fans, uh, concession stands, right? I mean, these are things at a national level we're doing decently these days. And they ultimately make money for the event, right? Because you get a portion of the, the proceeds from that go back to the, the people running the event. The ability to do uh, vendors, which sometimes you have a world rugby shop or a rugby athletic or Canterbury or whoever does those things and make sure they have enough merchandise. Right. You know, like, or if they run out of merchandise, like at College Sevens, Canterbury ran out of College Sevens t shirts. But they immediately put up a link to where you could go order the T-shirt online and they'd make more and send it to you. So that was a massive save, right? Like not many people think about that. Um, concession stands. I don't necessarily think alcohol is the best thing at events sometimes because as an event organizer and administrator, I've seen the negative side of that too much. And it's like, ugh. you know, you had to we had people arrested in Sacramento in 2015 for screaming obscenities at the Japanese fans. It's like, are the Japanese national team? Like, are you kidding me? Come on. You know, yeah, welcome. This isn't, them. this isn't the NFL. No, no, it's not. Right. Um, I think it's high time that rugby sold itself and it's no longer a rugby and beer or rugby and music. Right. Like, right. The concessions and the music enhance the rugby, not take away from the rugby. I think so. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah. Yeah, got it. 
Yeah, what do you think on, on a couple of those points? Well, one of the things I wrote down, uh, and this is this is a big one for me, and I think it's going to come again later, but uh, proximity. Mm. You know, you're you're. They you say you got a team from Fresno traveling to Arizona, right? Yeah. And me being on the East Coast, that's that's close for me. If I had to go out to Arizona and you know come up with funds, because these things, the way a lot of these. Uh, these qualifiers and championships work. I mean, you're notified maybe a month before, you know, so now you have players, um, parents, family, friends, whoever, you know, basically scrounging for money, trying to get things together. Um, you know, very tight window who can go, who can take the time off. So there's, I think that's a big stress on, uh, you know, on the players up until it's finalized and, and, you know, it's great getting that selection, but there's a lot of work with that selection. It's not just like, hey, here we go. Um, thanks for providing tickets and a hotel room and transportation. But, you know, now we've got to go ahead and come up with all this ourselves. So if there was a way to make that better for the, uh, you know, the player, so to speak, and maybe some of the, the fans even to get there, you know, that, that'd be that'd be great. But I, I don't really know how to fix that. But to me, yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah. So proximity right there's a couple pieces to that that i don't know if many people take into account one teams that are going to a national level typically have an idea they're going to finish close enough that they they want to go to national so it's on the teams to budget for that before the season right if you're a national championship contender like i know lindenwood lindenwood wants to go to nationals i'm sure that's in their budget going beforehand um in terms of so so most of the time like even at minnesota right we saw that we were playing well enough early in the spring and we started having the discussions about an at-large bid to college sevens and we started making preparations i called the alumni network i talked to the school the you know the club president was talking to the guys to say hey prepare for this right like piss poor planning on someone else's part does not constitute an emergency on an event organizer do you but know you, what I mean? Yeah, for, for sure. I, I mean, you're looking, yeah. you know, the one through eight, so to speak. Yeah. The kind of, the kind of a good idea, like, yeah. all right, you know, we're, we're a contender. And then nine through 16, it's, it's not that they're, they're not a contender, but you might not, you might not realize that till it's not too late, but it's, it's a little bit far down the road that you're trying to, uh, you know, pull all, all the things together. You know, I had a similar experience back when I was in college. We wound up qualifying for, uh, you know, a national tournament. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like a last minute, hey, we got to get everything together, fly from Tennessee and go to uh, Colorado. So, you know, booking buses and, and flights and getting hotel rooms organized. There's a lot of work, but, you know, we're able to pull it off. And the next year we prep properly, you know, with that that kind of, hey, we're we're a contender now or we're, we have the potential to be one. So let's, let's plan ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like our university told us straight up, like next year, put this in your budget and we'll, we'll account for it in the, in the budgetary hearings. Um, one last thing about proximity. I think the national office has done a much better job of putting like club championships regionally. Mm-hmm. Right. So East and West, those kinds of things. Now, sometimes it's a little askew. It's not too bad. Um, big 
picture though um is if you want to host a national championship and you want it in closer proximity to you put in a bid put in a bid like straight up like i know obets out of ohio is putting in bids i know southern california the great parks putting in bids i know um pittsburgh is put in bids like there's some continually active people in the community that want to see championships go to them and we're like we're like stomping on them because they're proactive in the game and they're putting in the bids, you know, like it, it takes a lot to run a national championship event. It takes a lot to even run a regional championship event for sure. So I, I think before we start slinging bullets down range, we mm-hmm. need to take a look at like, well, if I don't like this, I can change it myself and I'll, I'll put a bid together. Yeah, that's you know. just it. I mean, you're not going to get it if you don't ask for it. No, so exactly. Somebody's going to exactly. come knocking on your door and say, hey, yeah, we like your pitches. Can we use this? Doesn't doesn't typically work that way. Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel for everybody. I get it. But at the same time, like, until you run an event and you put together that bid and that package, much like we did in Minnesota for Club 7s in 2017, like, you really don't understand the scope of it and what it takes to go into that. So – enjoy your championships when you get to go to them as a team and get yourself ready to host one yourself. So that way you can figure out what it's all about and have some empathy for the people that do run it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, any, any local club that runs a tournament has gone through. I mean, we run a small tennis tournament and, uh, you know, months of preparation and make sure, like you said, all those details are organized and it's, it's not just a fly by night situation where, like, oh. oh, hey, we're going to do this. Now, there's a lot of a lot of prep and a, a lot of legwork. And, you know, a lot of people have to do a lot of things to make it a success. Otherwise, all you're going to talk about is a horrible experience. And, you know, you'd hate to be known for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing in terms of like running an event, just to my personal experience, the focus is on the field and the rugby and then out. Right. Yeah. Get a field, get your posts get the balls pumped up, right? Get your post pads on and then work your way out from there and then you'll be fine. Right. I, I think we've, we've covered that one. I know we'll talk a little bit more about national championships and sure. another question. Um, how about we move on a little bit here? This one, uh, this one's a, a little, a little different. I don't know if this guy's ever done anything in uh, rugby, but uh, this guy wants to know when is the ball out? Uh, Nick Tricarico via Instagram. Maybe he's, uh, never seen it. Maybe he's never seen a high-level game. I don't know. Um, when is the ball out? Well, it, when a bird can take a poop on it, right? When it's it's out of the ruck. The bigger question here on this one, Vin, is why is this a question from players in every single referee meeting before a game? Every, every game. Every game I've been playing for 19 years, I don't think I've ever missed a Sevens match, 15s, 10, <laughs> where it was not asked. I mean, scrimmages, it gets asked. It doesn't make sense. Oh, I think we're even asking the question now and not even – like it's just ingrained in us. Yeah. Like everyone's still – some people get caught offside sometimes, but offsides is not that big of an issue that you're, you need to ask when that ball's out. So, you know, um, and also every ref's different. And, of course, that's probably the reason why people think they need to ask it, but – I mean, the ball's out. 
why don't you ask high tackles? Why don't we ask about um, what's a knock on? Yeah, yeah. You know I, I think you, you see too with um, more so than like the ball being out is, uh, you know, around the breakdown, you have some guys that are mm. a lot faster reacting and, uh, you know, they can, they can be there as soon as hands are on it. Or, you know, is the ball actually, is it set and is it, is it placed? You know, you, you'll have guys essentially jump off sides or players jump off sides because from their point of view on the other side of the ruck, it looks like that ball is set, it's out. Meanwhile, player on the ground is still moving around. You know, trying to just get a, a set rock and right. maybe that's why I was asked. I don't know, but every time, <laughs> I, you know, I, you got to give credit to the refs here, or at least to the, to the solid refs. Definitely. Refs are talking 24 seven on the field, right? That's a ruck hands away, falls out. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. Easy. So absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing better than having a, a good ref and not, not having that person, you know, what ultimately becomes, uh, you know, some teams saying, oh, that, that ref had it out for us. Like, that's usually the, the follow-up, uh, you know, post-game. If it's, uh, if something doesn't go their way one or two times. Yeah, you know what? That's interesting you say that. I actually had a great conversation with Nick Ricono, who's the National Sevens manager, Sevens referee manager at Nationals, that perception is something that's very real in our sport. And Although I'm not a coach who thinks referees determine outcome of the game, I have been guilty of like that ref's being a little harder on us than I think on the other team. And and it's it's given me question, right? It's given me pause to say like it did I do something? Is it me? Is it my team? Is it where we're from or whatever? And you know, it's how do we deliver that information a little bit better, you know, to each other. And that's the whole reason why I, you know, I have the shows to open up communication and get stuff going. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, getting a little off topic here, but, but being able to film a game and, and watch it afterward when that, that emotional piece is out of it has been, um, has made it a lot easier to explain some stuff because, you know, especially as a player, you see what you see in front of you. You're not seeing it from where, you know, being a coach or on the sideline, you know, 100% certain, like, your man was off sides or that player was high tackled or, or whatever the case might be. But, you know, the player on the field sees what they see and they got to, you know, you got to remove yourself a little bit and, and go back and kind of unwind through video and, and learn from it. But, yeah, the uh, the momentum kill and there's, there's all sorts of stuff that goes with being a rep. And, and again, like you said, you know, with uh, with fields, if you, if you want to host a tournament, put in. You want to fix the referee stuff. Hey, there's there's classes all the time. There's certification classes. I mean, yeah. The only way it's going to get better is if you do it yourself, or you go to one of those courses and you learn why things are getting called. So, totally. Talk to your union. <laughs> yeah. You uh, you ready to move on to your question? Yeah. This uh, this one. All right. So. Uh, how would you change club rugby considering their issues with um, current split seasons and championships? Who, who sent that question in? Oh, that was me. That was me. So, <laughs> um, before so I do it, the, uh, your, your, your uh, soundboard here, my co-host. 
Yeah. So in terms of changing club rugby, right? And we I tapped I was tapped a little bit into this on the Pat cast that I did with Pat Clifton last week um, about seasonality, right? I mean, ultimately that's the discussion that I think we need to have in this country. And, and it sucks to even say that word out loud. Cause I know it like invokes rage in multiple people, you know, whether from the national office or territorial unions or local area unions or even referees, right? Like seasonality sucks. Um, we've grown enough, like we're not growing exponentially anymore, but like we've grown enough that there are so many entities that we've got to sort of put some puzzle pieces in certain time frames to get those done. Now, you know, you're looking at things like um, high school and youth, you're looking at college, you're looking at uh, all-star rep, uh, um, representative rugby from all those levels. You know, there, I just saw a U12 team go to Monaco to play in an international tournament. You know wow. what I mean? Like, so there's, um, there is definitely conversations happening in terms of like, scheduling things a little bit better i don't know how well they're being received in the community i know some folks are you know still frustrated that there's a fall and a spring season and like areas like the west coast get to play all through the spring and then they come like really hot out of the gates into the championships yeah. in june right or may or june when playoffs happen and i know that's that's difficult for like a team like yours that's on the east coast that has a split season it's difficult. Um, if I were to change club rugby, I would have to talk about seasonality, right? And in terms of seasonality, it's not just like when who's going to play, when who's going to play throughout the year. It's like what's important, right? And you need to balance that between MLR, internationals, you know, the sevens and fifteens, World Series time and and international windows for fifteens. Um, you've got to balance college, you know, when to when are teams in and out of school? You know, like club high club rugby for youth should probably be during the summer. You know what I mean? Because then it's not interfering with any other school sports or school rugby leagues that we have. Right. Um, adult club rugby as passionate as it is and as many championships as we have for it it should be during a certain time frame where if athletes that are playing in those comps are good enough they can have an opportunity to play mlr right and we do have an mlr question about club rugby coming up but you know if if it was in a perfect world you'd go um club rugby 15 season into an MLR season and then a seven season, like through a summer fall that leads into the world series. Right. Like, and then you would have everybody on that high school youth and college and club. And then all-stars would have a little, if you don't go to MLR, you go play all-stars to get like a look at maybe being in, in an MLR wider training group. And then, you know, you sort of a little downtime and then you go into sevens. It, that'd be a perfect world. Can we do that? I don't think there's enough months in the year without snow for the West, for like the Midwest East right. on East, right. To do that. So the, I don't know how popular this opinion is. If we got rid of national championships and we stopped leaning so hard on being national champions on 32 different competitions, 
we could potentially play regionally at different times and not have one interfere with the other. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and I'll be honest, like my clubs just took third in the nation back in San Diego. My boys just took 11th in the nation in college sevens. So I see the validity in it and I see the esteem and, um, the, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of here? Like sort of like the clout that comes with, saying you went to a national championship, but I went to New Zealand in 2013 and played won a grand final with my premiership team. And the day after we went and watched a, another club game down in Hamilton, we watched some super rugby and over, over beers. I was like, Hey guys, when do we go to nationals? Hmm. And all of my friends were like, what are you talking about? Nationals? There's only a national sevens competition and that's provincial anyways. Like, if you're good enough, you go on a Mitre 10 Cup. And it was like, it dawned on me, like, the rest of the world doesn't do that. You know, like, why are we doing things that the rest of the world isn't doing? Maybe we should step back from the Americanization of the game. You know, like, we love our national championships as Americans. Right. We even oh, yeah. called the world the World Series is the champion of the world. And there's only two countries in the damn thing. Super Bowl champions, you know, of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were to take away national championships, I think there's a better avenue to have discussions about seasonality. You know, I mean, you also and we'll talk about resources a little bit more. And I think it's question six. B that we'll get to, but you know, you've got to, you've got to have that look, right. You got to look at our national championships viable Does the cost outweigh the benefits of those. Does, you know, international and MLR need to have a piece of that sort of scheduling time frame? Do you take into account sevens versus 15s and you have to have the argument recreational versus professional. I mean, on, on a club rugby level, that's recreation. You make it more so because you put it a national championship in there. But if you're just playing recreationally and playing locally, you cut out travel, cut out costs. You um, you actually, I think you would see teams balance the competition more because in certain areas, players are playing for a quote unquote better club because they play in a higher division and have gone to nationals. Well, I don't need to play for the national championship contender because my team's closer and I can make this team better. Do you know what I mean? You're you're definitely hitting something that uh, I I was just talking about last night. You know, I I look at uh, some of the clubs around here. There's one team that has 60 plus guys running for sevens. Mm -hmm. And uh, meanwhile, you know, there's another team that's uh, working with four other local teams in the area, trying to piece together one side. And one one is uh, has played in national championships. The other is trying to get you know foot in the door, so to speak. But yeah, that's it's a really good point with with that. I think we've lost our way in terms of participation versus competition at times. Mm-hmm. We've placed so much emphasis on that that top level, that echelon. I mean, in the national championship for D one club rugby or D two club rugby, only the top. 16 teams go and there are hundreds if not thousands of capable teams to do that there are plenty of rugby players in this country that just play because it's fun to do on a saturday yeah right absolutely right do you know what i mean and and we we should value that just as much 
as we value national championships. In my opinion, that's just my two cents. Yeah, definitely agree. And it's, uh, it's kind of where I was, you know, leading with that one. I, I, I was looking yeah. for, uh, for some sort of, uh, different, different take on it. Cause you know, these, these are conversations or, or thoughts that I have here. I'm on the East coast, but I've played on the East coast. I've played in Florida. I've played out in Las Vegas. Yeah. So I've seen that seasonality thing. I, I know coming, you know, starting your season right after Thanksgiving because the weather's great. It's easy yeah. to fly into, you know, into that, that um, national tournament or, or even the, the local tournament because you have a weather advantage. I mean, even when I was playing down in Florida, we had a bit of an advantage over some of the teams in the same region because, you know, in Atlanta or, or Georgia, you, you can't go as long because, you know, unfortunately it's snow and it gets colder. But, uh, you know, being here on the East Coast and being a little bit north now, we, we have the fall. You know, we play our season and then we have what I want to call is like the typical attrition because you lose how many guys because of, uh, you know, they move for jobs or you, you move yeah. because, uh, you know, it's a two month, three month, four month break. You know, they just lose some interest. You know, you try to keep the teams together, but sometimes yeah. it's not sustainable. No, yeah. no, to- totally. I mean, Metropolis here in Minnesota, they they had some players move on to the MLR and they had won the fall season and then they opted not to play in the spring last two years, right? They opted not to go to championships um, in terms of effect on a club, right? Let's, I can speak, for example, with the old Aztecs. We started our rugby, like you were talking about, around mid-November, sort of like get slowly going, pay one or two preseason matches and then start like second week in January in our league. Well, once we made nationals, that date went to October 15th. Once we went to nationals and didn't play too well, and we got bumped in the first round, that bumped out to October 1st, huh. right? We actually had like six to eight games at one point, plus a turn or six games plus a tournament in preseason. Then we finished third in the nation twice. And then all of a sudden, the only month that we didn't play organized rugby, but we had touch every Tuesday, Thursday was September. Oh, wow. Right. We played like October one, full on 15s training through June one. Right. I mean, with like a two week break for Christmas and then straight into sevens. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I get the split season, but man, I, my body, like if I had a split season, I would have played 10 more years. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it sucks having the weather for sure. But that, that break, man, that breaks nice. It is nice. You know? The, uh, the winter weather, uh, you know, it definitely adds a couple LBs to the body though. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, I, this is my first stab, but let's move on to these MLR questions. All right. So first one, uh, six, a is uh, do you think MLR is good for the future of club rugby? And this comes from Monty via contact form. Okay. Do I think MLR is good for the future of club rugby? The short answer to that is maybe. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in 6B. Ben, can you, can you hit the second part of that question? Yeah. Is the, ML, is the MLR fighting for the same limited free time that fans, players, coaches, and refs as club or does MLR make the whole pie bigger? Well, 
like we said, the answer to making club rugby better is maybe. Um, and this is a generalized conversation based off of my experience that I had in pro rugby in sort of being in rugby development and in the game for as long as I have professionalization of a sport does not always translate into participation gain, right? Uh, case in point, little league baseball and high school football in the state of California are on a decline, right? The specialization model has had kids start specializing as early as nine, like we discussed before. And by the time they're getting sophomores in high school, they're crapping out of the game and they don't, they don't see that trajectory or their projection to the college to then to the pro levels. So then they, they just step out. Now is a, is a pro entity good to have in a sport? Yeah, it's great as a fan. It's great as a fan, but pro entities have no responsibility whatsoever to grow the game. They're a commercial entity. Their whole thing is to win championships, increase their fan base and increase their bottom line, right? Make budget, be under salary cap, do all those good things. Do I think the MLR is a good thing? Yes. I love the MLR. I have many friends that play in it, many friends that coach in it, play in refs that ref in it. Is it helping club rugby or college rugby, right? Let's take that. We've got to include both levels because one of the conversations that's happening now is eligibility. If you play in the MLR as a college player, you lose your eligibility for college rugby. Do not pass go. You don't get to go back to your college team. Is it nice to have an opportunity to go play professional rugby? Yeah. Is it worth it enough now to forego your opportunities to play college rugby with your friends and grow at a progressive level according to your age and experience level? I don't know. You know, most players that I know are telling me that the, the going rate right now is about $15 an hour per player only for the season that they're playing in many college graduates are coming out with jobs that are paying 20 to 25 dollars if not 30 dollars an hour yeah. right so yeah. how do you how do you differentiate that now right now the pay in mlr might be keeping some people out or saying i'm gonna go the professional route play cub rugby and stay there but mlr is expanding at an exponential rate I think they're going to what twenty teams next year, something like that. Is it twenty? I, I, I thought it was less, but it's still you're 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 onto something now. Yeah. So in terms of playing, right in pro rugby, we found for this Ohio, San Diego, Denver, San Fran, Sacramento. Is that five teams in pro rugby or six? I can never remember. I there were six. six. Well, for six teams, we needed a hundred and eighty players to cover the wider groups of each team and have a solid 23 on match day. We do not have a depth chart of 180 players in the United States. That's why you're seeing a lot of foreign influence, a lot of players being flown in guys who are at the end of the minor cup season, who didn't get a super contract, Japanese players who are finishing their top league contracts, French players who are finishing, you know, the top, uh, pro 12 over there or whatever competition is in France. Excuse me. Um, you're seeing some of these players come in to bolster rosters because the talent pool in the United States has been tapped. And Pat Clifton said it best a couple weeks ago, like you're having a hard time finding players and you're borrowing from other teams. Now they should have just been on your radar to begin with. Well, it still doesn't change 
that there wasn't enough to go around to begin with, you know, and, and I think expansion is a good thing at a rate that you could handle. You know, you're looking at some of the competitive games. I know Houston's had a resurgence recently. They've won a couple on the trot. Utah's won maybe one or two game and Austin's won zero. You know, Austin just changed their director of rugby. Todd Clever just came in, just announced today. So we might need to take a look at a promotion and relegation model for MLR. If I, if I were in the league office, right? I'm not, but promotion and relegation. How many players are available? You know, look, look at look at Rugby United New York and look at Toronto Arrows. They're both in the top four now, and they're an expansion team. You, that shows you sort of where that parity is between the teams is you could come in the game with a decent roster and you could be in that playoff contention immediately in year one. Well, things will be telling, I think, in year three and year four about how many players we've bled, how many players have gotten time and experience. I mean, you need like 35 players per roster to get a solid 23 every week. Sure. You know, I just saw Paul Enberg. He was out at National Small College Sevens to try to find the next diamond in the rough. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're looking at some of the smallest colleges in the country to find a player to play in Houston. Maybe we should slow down a little bit. Um, in terms of refereeing, you don't have to worry about refs. Refs have their national panel and they have the the elite level referees that will get those opportunities. And they do a very good job of training them and keeping them fit and keeping them in the game, right? Like every now and then you'll get like an M. Shea or a Michael Bryan who goes and does HSBC stuff on the World Series. But there's still a decent crop of folks who are working those MLR games. So refereeing, not too worried about. Um, club rugby needs to worry about referees on the participation level, right? We need enough refs to cover all of the youth games, all of the high school games, all of the college games, and all of the club games. That's four levels, which goes back to seasonality, right? Some of them play at the same time. Maybe we split that up a little bit if we can. I don't know. But there are areas that are struggling and they're suffering. And the referees are telling people what days they can and cannot play rugby on. Which, which is tough to deal with sometimes, right? Because field availability, coach availability, player availability. I know that's something you deal with, Vinny, on a weekly basis. you got guys that can make Tuesday but can't make Thursday. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then Saturday, if it's an away game that's a little far out there, guys are like, I don't know, coach. Maybe I won't go. Yeah. I, got a, I got a thing at Home Depot. Got to go wash my hair. <laughs> yeah, so I think there are limited resources players, money, fans, fans are always the last one, to be honest, in terms of the game, right? You think about players first, then you go to coaches, referees are sort of on a parallel pathway, right? That's your performance triangle. You need coaches to coach the players, players to play the game and referees to ref the game and so on and so forth. If you have those three things, good. Okay. As long as we keep those moving, we'll be fine. Um, Fans are the outlier there. Like fans will choose to watch whatever they want. You know, they'll choose to pay for Flow Rugby. They'll choose to pay for ESPN Plus. They'll choose to pay for CBS Sports. I personally have watched games on each of those outlets this year. You know, I've watched MLR games. I think the level's coming up. I think it's getting better. I think some of the same issues we had in pro rugby are there. Players in a daily training environment, they're not used to the volume and intensity at such a sustained level over the long course of a season now our professional season is nowhere near as long as say europe or japan or new zealand 
but our athletes are at that that ground level and we're going to have to work up to that you know i i just hope the quality remains good enough across the board throughout the season that it's an entertainment value for the fans you know yeah, yeah definitely i uh so j- just to go back so right now there's nine teams nine uh, teams yeah we'll be at 12 for next year so three coming on so you have atlanta coming on yeah. you have the free jacks coming on and you have uh old glory coming on so i've yeah. been been able to see the first two old glory matches and you know they're, they're entertaining but what you're saying you know now we're and it's not a knock against any of the guys but yeah because the the pool is a little bit limited you know we're, we're plucking guys from d1 clubs d2 clubs um you know clubs in the area and it's not that they're bad players but are they necessarily the professional player are they the kind of guy that uh you know this is this is a guy that they might be called upon to play for the eagles one day or is it just kind of Hey, we're available right now. Let, let's fill out a side, you know. So there's there is going to be those growing pains, and and you can see it. Um, you know, DC played against the uh, the U twenty Scott side, which uh, no uh, no small task. You know, they they fought till the end. The score was uh, lopsided, but you know, twenty four hundred people came out, and we were there, and we cheered, and you know, it was, it was tough to watch, but it, it just it shows kind of hey, this is where this other you know, again, that's a national side right. prep team, but just shows kind of, hey, this is this is where we want to be, right? This is yeah. where we want our our step below national side to be, maybe, or or be close. I mean, straight up, like that is where we want. That's why we have an MLR is to try to make a viable career for professional rugby athletes in the United States that would ultimately translate into more available players for the national team are we succeeding on that level yeah i think we are i think we are i think gary gold has got some great and mike friday which sevens is an outlier in this a little bit because the seasons don't line up but i think the national team pool is growing and it's getting a little deeper it's an opportunity for some guys who may not have been on the radar to get to get some contracts and get, get into a daily training environment and become better you know, you never really know until you get to that level. So, I mean, a couple things to keep in mind about the MLR now, where if you're looking at like a, a league that maybe we want to emulate in 10 years, right? It's the Premiership Rugby in England. Okay. Premiership games in 1995 were averaging 1,500 people a game. Okay. And now you're selling out stadiums at the Premiership Finals, 60, 70,000 plus. Right. You know, the premiership final is going to be at Twickenham, which I believe is like 80,000 plus, And it's, it's going to be amazing. So it's like MLS is the same way. It's a, like a 20 year plan. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. We're critical right now. That's fine. And, and people are going to be critical throughout the whole process. Cause no one's ever going to be a hundred percent happy. Easy to, it's easy to, to poo on everything. It really is. Yeah. And you know what, to be, to be brutally honest, I kind of cringed at this question when I got it because I am a loyalist. I want rugby to succeed. I want to see the the Eagles that I know that are in that gr- those groups and the college players I've seen or the the Aztec young Aztec players that I know that are coming up through those ranks, you know, Saintsmen, all those people that I've known. I want to see them succeed. I don't want to see the league fail. You know, I I don't. I, I want you all to succeed. I want to see great rugby in this country, and I want people to have a good, shining example. So the product is pretty good on the field at the moment. 
the players are enjoying it. I think some venues could get a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That's that's time, right? You need time and effort. I'm more than happy to give everybody the time to s- set these things in motion, get them right, do the right things, get people in the gate, you know, give a chance for it to grow and go. So you've got to give credit to the owners. I mean, straight up, man, these guys are, I don't know what the books look like, mm-hmm. but they're willing to take a risk for at least two years, maybe a third year now. You know, you're looking at year four and five or three, four and five coming up. Like if they stay the course, it gives our players a place to play, train, uh, showcase their talents. You know, you, you're getting, you're seeing like, uh, I want to say it's, Please, God, don't butcher his name, but it's one of the athletes from Seattle Seawolves just got signed to County, County's Manukau down in New Zealand to play ITM Cup this fall, Wow, which is a great opportunity for him. I want to say his name's Tim Metcher. I hope that's the right name. If it's not, I'll put the right name in the show notes. So I, I think MLR is great as, as a professional entity. Does it help club rugby? I don't know. I don't think so. Right? You it might give some people who who see a person go on a contract, give that, that guy behind them an opportunity. You know, they're not necessarily stealing fans or stealing players or stealing money because they're all their own separate entities, right? Right, right. So I, I don't think it helps. I don't think it – well, I don't know if it helps. I don't know if it hurts. The only place I could see where it could really potentially hurt someone is that eligibility issue for college players. Do you know what I mean? And oh, yeah. I, I mean, if you're if you're a young player in the United States right now, and you've seen all these MLR, all the MLR talent that's at teams, you have an opportunity in your club. Step up. You know, get to the gym. See see what a guy like Mike Petrie did for years. Taught full time, was a dad, a husband, worked out every day at six a.m. Went and taught all day, and then at night went to practice or went and did extras. That's how you become a professional in this country. Right. Mike Petrie is the shining light, the example of how to be a professional in the United States. Do that for a while and then you'll get your opportunity in the MLR as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with uh, like you're saying, with, with club rugby, I, I don't, I think it's definitely a positive for USA rugby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could definitely see it these last like two seasons, sevens and fifteens. A couple years ago, we, we'd play you know, international matches. And if, you know, your key guys out, you're, you're rolling in kind of, kind of light and, you know, who's up next now? I mean, geez, look at, uh, look at sevens. We, we lost what was essentially this, you know, half the starting side for the, for the middle of this, uh, HSBC and just plug and play, figure it out. And, uh, you know, have remained, I mean, now we're in second, but we're right there. I mean, we are in striking distance. And it's all the growth, you know, all the, I think all the talent being recognized from the club side though, like, you know, you go back to that and this is, I think, you know, this goes back to like geographic unions and the way that some of the competition is set up, but, you know, maybe in some spots there's too many teams Mm -hmm. where, you know, a, a team with 20 guys or, or 18 guys, you know, maybe it's time to, to fall in line with one of the bigger clubs or, you know, combine sides and, and, you know, kind of 
I know there's there's a lot of history behind clubs and there's a lot of people that, hey, this is my team, this is what I'm doing, but for the longevity and to make maybe to, to make a whole group of people better, you know, having that internal competition and, and having more bodies to lean on and kind of getting uh more alignment within an area. You know, you have I, I don't know how many teams are in Minnesota, but I mean I, right now I can count in a fifty mile range here, there's like eight teams. Yeah. I mean it's yeah. this is there's a city, granted, but it's that's a lot of teams. That's you know, if you're looking at that model of like 30 guys or or saving 20, that's 160 guys you need to come up with every week, you know, plus, you know, for training, for games, for travel, et cetera. And, yeah. uh, you know, maybe, maybe just a little more giving up that, uh, that stranglehold, so to speak on like, well, we're part of this area and this is what we are. And it's funny. Put the pride should... aside, I guess. Put the pride yeah. aside a little bit. Ego, right? How much yeah. of the sport comes down to ego? And what you just described was a conversation I had with friends in the Midwest uh, about three or four weeks ago about how an area like Chicago, right, has the Lions, the Griffins, the Blaze, and like 10 other smaller teams which are competitive depending on the year and the numbers that they have. And many of those players, from what I understand, and excuse me, I'm not wholeheartedly versed in the history of Chicago area rugby, but many of them were players who were on the Lions that weren't on the top side or thought that they were getting burned, and they splintered off and made these different little clubs and, and areas in Chicago. And now some of them are struggling a lot of us that have come through the game that are in the game right now didn't start then. And honestly, I could care less about a guy who didn't get time on a top seat, top side 20 years ago. What I care about is playing with my friends every weekend, continuing to learn the game and having a game every weekend. Right. Right. Like there's nothing more frustrating than, a club stalwart who turns up every Tuesday, Thursday, only to be told there's not enough numbers to do practice and there's not enough numbers to travel this weekend. Or you turn up Tuesday, Thursday, you're expecting to play Saturday and you're told a club doesn't have enough numbers to come. Maybe one of the changes to club rugby is we consolidate some of these teams like you're talking about and get one or two teams per city or two clubs that have multiple teams you play each other locally and then you go to your next city or whatever, like Chicago comes to Minnesota or comes to Madison to play Wisconsin, so on and so forth. Maybe that's one of the changes you make. You know, we, we, if we want our game to live and breathe and die or live and breathe, not die, excuse me, we've got to give up this ego that like, I'm a, I'm a Spartan through and through and then yeah. I'll go to the grave with, with this, this cotton jersey in my hand, right? Like, right. That doesn't do it, you know. No, like, you're, you're right. You know, or I'm not gonna play sevens because I'm a fifteens guy. But then all the guys who play sevens for this other club are seeing how organized things are and doing all this other stuff. Which I think that's you're gonna have success doing that, Vin, because you're organized. You're a hell of a coach, and guys are gonna gravitate towards you. You know, there's, it's a ego. Usually, in my in my mind, ego is usually the thing 
that makes a lot of bad decisions for us in this sport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it is what it is. So I, I know that was kind of a tangent about MLR and club and seasonality and all that stuff, but these are it the conversations now started and you and I were a catalyst for that, Vince. Sorry, USA rugby. But um so be it, man. You got to have these things. You got to talk about these things to get them right. Yeah, I, I don't think we're – maybe we're alone. There might be one or two other people. But, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't think this is something that uh, – unless you've been around the game for a while or have uh, have seen rugby in certain spots, like there's a lot of things that you pick up that you're like, man, it's a great idea. Or, God, that was a terrible idea. I hope that never happens again. And then you see some of these things resurface, whether good or bad. You know, and, and you, the longer you're around, you know, obviously with, with age comes experience and, and you, you learn and, and you're like, hey, you know, I see a great opportunity right now. And, and the way that there's a lot more communication now between unions, I, I yeah. think, um, you know, the USA rugby is a lot more uh, forward now. Like, you know, I read something just a couple nights ago, like with their, uh, I think it was a board meeting that they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I hadn't seen that in years i don't feel like you know like so you never knew nobody ever knew what was going on at headquarters you know mm-hmm. unless you knew somebody that worked there and you get kind of a scoop but yeah. you know the transparency and, and and talking about these things i mean that's how that's how things get fixed or, or get made better yeah you know in, in terms of that sort of that communication piece and sort of looking for a target right like a saying that i've had and i keep at the forefront of my mind i had it since high school high school counselor mr hami gave it to me was is your house in order before you go knocking on somebody's door and throwing stones at their yard get your stuff together first and that starts at the club level and then you could yell at the local union and if the local union's got their stuff together then you escalate it right chain of command man you know that coast guard oh, oh yeah Straight up. Don't don't go banging on the national office if your fight is with the scheduler of your local union or your referee society. Go to them. You know? Yeah, no, you're you're right. Like the the CEO doesn't want to hear from you if you uh if you got a problem with the guy right next to you. Well, one of the tenets of, of military is solve it at the lowest level possible, right? Pick up the phone, drop your ego, call someone and say, like like we've had recently with our family, right? With our Coast Guard yep. rugby family. We had to have a conversation over the phone, text message and email doesn't work. Right. Right. There's, there's no, there's no emotion in, uh, in the written word sometimes doesn't, doesn't quite convey the same way. Yeah. So enough for the serious stuff. I think we've got, I think we've got two, two decent ones to finish up with here. So why don't we move on to number seven? All right. I'm going to butcher one of these names for sure. Cause I can't say it, but, uh, how on earth is Rooney going to feed Patrick Ryan? Anthony Perry, James Rockford, and uh, Matthew, I can't say his last name. Bastardo. Bastardo at the same time. This comes from the, uh, the Rooney supporters via Instagram. They have serious concerns in one of the uh, most food-friendly cities in the world. <laughs> yeah, you know, hats off to Rooney for making some incredible signings this year, right? You got Dylan Fawcett's also up there in the, in the front row, who's a hell of a, a hooker. Um, I wouldn't want that food bill as a manager, to be honest. And huh. and just a little insight into to management on the professional and international level. Food is your largest bill for the team, hands down, hands down. It's always about twenty to thirty percent higher than your room charges. 
<laughs> it's crazy. So Rooney, good luck with that. I hope you guys, you know, Mike Petri, eat first so you get some food <laughs> at, at team stuff. Um, Sneak up in there yeah. first. Yeah, and away you go. So why don't we finish with this last one? Because I've also kept you on the phone a little, little long today. That's all right. All right. So last one here. Uh, what do you consider your biggest milestones? This is from uh, Will Rains via Instagram. Oh, uh, milestones. You can break them into personal and rugby, right? Obviously, personally, having two beautiful children, two beautiful teenagers, my daughter, Madison, who's going to turn 16 this year. Uh, my son, Deegan, who's 13, who's going to turn 14 next year. That, those are my two biggest milestones, accomplishments, and the things, the, the two reasons why I do what I do, right? Every day I try to make those two little nuggets proud of me and then see how, how I do. And, um, you know, personally, it's, it's also milestones is coming through the military and, and then um, doing some college and then becoming a professional rugby administrator and coach or whatever it is, professional rugby management person uh, is another massive milestone for me. You know, I mean, it's not easy being a veteran and it's not easy going into the civilian world, but rugby, as you've heard a ton of times, Vin, rugby is like the closest thing that I have to the military. And it's uh, just living in this world and being able to connect with everybody is, is such a major milestone for me because there were times a couple of years ago where I could have crawled, crawled into a hole and died because I wasn't connecting with folks. I was doing too much and, and not doing enough to, to be a human. Um, you know, rugby-wise milestones, I mean, my time with um, old Aztecs, right, was great. My time with Ombak was actually really good, too. You know, learning from guys like Dan Payne, Todd Clever, Chris Wiles, old Aztecs. You got Richie Walker, Jared Fall, Jaco Brettenbach, Lucas Edwards. I mean, two third-place finishes in the United States. My time with Mid-Northern Rugby Football Club in, in New Zealand. I won a grand final with them. Coast Guard Rugby, obviously, is a massive accomplishment. That was the first time that I went from coaching kids to coaching men, and it has been the biggest learning experience of my life and have had so many people come through either playing Coast Guard Rugby or supporting Coast Guard Rugby. Obviously, that's where you and I became friends, and, and you know, we've both got opportunities through that. So, you know, you know, I guess playing at a high level and – becoming a coach or two of my major rugby accomplishments or milestones. And personally, it's um, my kids and my family and my amazing partner, Katie, who I can't imagine what it's like to live with me because I'm super anxious and process driven at times. So hats off to her for being a saint and uh, awesome all at the same time. So I, I, I don't know any other milestones are just it's just a daily task to me right get up talk to players get up plan mm -hmm. practice get up record a podcast i guess starting a podcast is a massive milestone right like could you imagine me in 2012 starting a podcast oh man hair on fire hair <laughs> on fire yeah uh it would be nothing but four letter words and burritos you know like god well, you didn't so, drink coffee then, so I don't know if you get as productive. Ooh, coffee's a major milestone. Yeah, yeah. 
I started drinking coffee at the age of 36. That's weird. And practice got exponentially more fun and intense. <laughs> I think so what's easier to do. Well, yeah. Uh, I think Vink has a standing rule that I'm not allowed to have Cuban coffee because apparently it's stronger. So I try to search it out every time we assemble. <laughs> um, Keep an eye on you then. Yeah. I don't know, Ben. Any other questions or anything on your mind before we sign off? No, I think uh, I think that covers a lot for for you know what what you got here for these eight, and then hopefully uh, you know me interjecting a little bit, uh, yeah. you know, get some people thinking or, or thinking of other questions or mm-hmm. you know bring some uh, some additional thoughts to just the state of you know all of our games and and. Yeah. You know, where we're at. Yeah. I think, um, I think this was a cool little exercise and I'm really glad I got to, I thought to ask you to come on yesterday. Cause I was sitting there thinking like, how am I going to ask myself questions? You know? So thanks for coming on and, and being a, a sounding board and a co-host. Yeah, definitely. You know, add that, add that to your list of titles. <laughs> right under uh, everything else. I was hoping I you, could, uh, you can ask yourself the question, you know, from the left side and answer from the right or. <laughs> oh, God. That'd maybe follow to the question. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, it's been good. I think this is kind of a cool little segment. And I, I think if people want to ask more questions or want to get our take on it, send us a contact form to at snackscast.com or a DM at, at snackscast on Instagram. Um, or you could email me. I believe it's contactsnackscast at gmail.com. So if there's anything else you want Vinny and I to answer in a future show, you let know, us know. We, we skipped on a big milestone. And oh. I, I don't know how we could do it. Oh. Yeah. So the uh, Women's Armed Forces Rugby. Yes. Yeah. Years and years and years. You know, all the, all the women that have, have played – that were also in the service, never really got that opportunity to put a jersey on. And mm-hmm. finally now, 2019, you know, we're going to have our first official Women's Armed Forces Championship. And, you know, I, there's a lot of people to, to, to kind of pat on the back and thank. But, you know, this, this would not get done without a, a small group of people just really, really, really pushing for it and yeah. almost willing it to creation. You know, we were really close last year. Mm-hmm. And, uh we we had 20 women you know ready to go and we had to kind of pull the uh pull the rug so to speak but you know this year got on the calendar and got on the schedule and you know here here we are so we're looking at uh you know women's armed forces they they're going to play at uh cape fear sevens this year mm-hmm. they're going to kick off the day before the actual cape fear sevens tournament starts so it's so july yeah. 5th but yeah yeah if you're uh you know not not to not to just plug tournaments here but uh if you're down in the cape fear area during fourth of july weekend and you're looking to see some uh you know armed forces rugby you're, you're gonna get the first official uh you know inaugural uh tournament yeah yeah that and i i don't think i don't think it could be stated enough about how important that is and i think about the honor that you and i have to be a part of our coast guard team um, on the on the early stages of this, and and having inspirations like Coma Gandy Fishbine and Lisa Rosen and Caitlin Kelly, and um, you know, there's many many women's rugby players in the military from years and years that 
have fought really hard to do this and i am super honored just to play a small role in our team and and in the the larger armed forces picture you know like it's it's time they it was time 10 years ago but you know a lot of us now have matured and become coaches and and sort of looked around and said why aren't we doing this let's get this done you know and and i can't wait to you know, we just did our selections this past week for invitations to camp. I know Marines and Air Force and Army and Navy are doing theirs as we speak. And um, I'm excited to celebrate with people like Coma and Lisa and Caitlin and um, and celebrate with our women, right? Our 16 athletes. And I know there's a bunch of Coasties in the area that will that'll be down there, you know, and, and come out and support the Coast Guard women's rugby team and see what we're about, you know, like. I think it's going to be awesome. I think it's a hell of a hell of a championship to finally have. And, you know, one thing I talked to Megan Carr, one of our players on a one-on-one yesterday is that the Coast Guard plays armed forces sports for the Navy for every single other sport except for rugby. Rugby, Coast Guard rugby is the only officially recognized armed forces sports team. I think hockey's getting close, but right now it's just rugby. Right. You know, come out, send us an email, send us an application, come get an opportunity to wear a Coast Guard jersey with that stripe on the front, play for the stripe, play for unity of effort. I think it's, I think it's huge. I think it's a huge, huge thing. And, and like I said, I'm super honored to, to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't, didn't want to, didn't want to forget about that one. It's not, I, it's not anybody's real personal milestone, but, but I think it's, you know, you having a piece of it and yeah, just, just having hands kind of in the pot to, to, to help push us forward and, you know, yeah. keep people, pe- people engaged for years now, like, Hey, it's coming. Hey, it's coming. I mean, I've been hearing that story for almost six years. Yeah. You know, I've been here, I've been hearing it since 2000. Wow. You know, having coma, coma, and I were in San Diego in 2002 having those talks about yeah. combined services and all that stuff, you know, and it's a huge win for the military rugby community and a huge, huge win for women's rugby. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome that now we're starting to identify more women in the service to take on these roles, right? Like, and, and take up these spots and do these things. So yeah, for sure. With, uh, you know, it, it's another recruiting tool. Um, mm-hmm. yeah probably helps with retention i mean i i'd have to do a survey or study or something but if, you know if if you're a rugby player and you're and there's an opportunity to go ahead and represent your service or the country in like a uh you know another level like hey maybe you know maybe the military is for you or or maybe it, it kind of skews the uh you know the balance that you're like well you know i could do this so, oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. glad and, we're uh, we're getting yeah. it finally and and to be brutally honest, we didn't forget this. We're just so process driven. We stuck yeah. to the script that I wrote, <laughs> right? Like these are the eight questions we got. So we just stuck to it. So apologies that I, I didn't write that in to begin with, but um, I wish people could see my screen. I have rosters, uh, lodging. I have, uh, <laughs> you know, credit card info. Well, not info, but I have uh, basically every, every piece to get this team going on my screen behind this uh this window right now but you know you can't see that on the on the podcast no, you can't see the life of a manager and his uh, 
lots of Excel sheets. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, again, thank you for coming on the show today and being my sounding board and a great co-host. I think this might turn into a semi-regular segment if if people are interested. So uh, I'll get this edited in the can. So thanks, man. Anything you want to say before we sign off? Uh, Just, you know, thanks for uh, having me on Snacks. And, uh, you know, if there's more more questions or anybody needs to reach out to me, uh, I'm on, uh, I'm on Instagram, Nintendo at Nintendo at CG rugby. Yeah. If you need, if you're, uh, you know, looking for anything for like coast guard, uh, you know, if you're a player or know people in the coast guard or just want more information, we are on Instagram, Facebook, uh, at CG rugby. We have a, uh, a Gmail. What's the Gmail address? Coast guard rugby at Gmail. Okay. Okay, and we have a, a dot mill for anybody in the service. It's just uh, CG Rugby at USCG dot mill. But mm-hmm. yeah, any any all questions, and if you know you're in the uh, the uh, <laughs> Mac Mac area and you want to connect, you know I'm I'm in the Mid Atlantic region here in Prince William. But uh, yeah, feel free to reach out and connect. All right. Well, with that, Vin, I'll sign off. Have a great day, my friend. All right, Snacks. Talk to you soon. Later. Bye.